This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 4, Hegel and the Historicist Chronotope. So on, on Saturday night, I took my 11-year-old daughter to see the Barbie movie. And I, I expected the Barbie movie to be a political satire about Barbie. It actually turned out to be a Hegelian reading of Barbie. And I thought, oh, this is perfect. I can integrate this into my lecture. I, I'd be very curious as to what the people who wrote that script were thinking, because there were some very explicitly Hegelian moments that I don't think were a coincidence. Like, somebody must have been consciously thinking about this. Okay. Um, anyway, this is when things get more exciting. This is, like, much more fun than your general overview of enlightenment, your general overview of romanticism. Um, so one thing I'll say, I'll re remind everyone, please do download those handouts. The handouts are your study guides, they're your note-taking guides, they are there, they will be there, they're posted under files. If you print it out and lose it, you can download another version. Um, a lot of these ideas, I'm going to keep looping back. I'm going to keep looping back to some of the same ideas, you know, and they will eventually percolate. But they're going to take time, and you're going to kind of have to wait and see how like, they look coming in from one angle and coming in from another angle. Like you look at the cube from one side, you walk around, you look at it from the other side, and eventually you're going to get a sense of how it all goes together, but it's going to take some time. Um, and Hegel is one of these things that are going to take some time. Um, there is, by the way, a brilliant lecture course on phenomenology of spirit by my colleague Jay Bernstein at the New School, which was audio recorded years ago, long before the pandemic. And those audio recordings you can download on the internet. I think I put the address on the syllabus. So if anybody really wants to commune with Hegel or you want to go through like a close reading of paragraph 192, you should listen to Jay Bernstein's podcast. It's a year-long lecture course. It's like 70 hours worth of lectures. You know, he goes through line by line, and he's a fabulous lecturer. I'm going to use some of his material here. I'll tell you when we get to his parts. Um, okay, let's go back to the French Revolution. 1789. French Revolution cast a long shadow over the 19th century. Um, this moment of a kind of humanist glorification, the rights of man, and then it's dialectical inversion into a kind of orgy of bloodlust during the terror. Um, a lot of the next hundred years will be spent thinking about was the French Revolution a good thing or a bad thing? There are many debates about this. Um, for Hegel, as for Marx, in different ways, the answer is very clear. Yes, it was a good thing. Moreover, it was a necessary thing. And one of the things you need to do to understand Hegel is to understand that good and necessary are essentially synonymous for Hegel. Um, those two things are always going together. Marx is going to want to take that French Revolution even further, and we'll get to that later. Um, July 14, 1789, storming of the Bastille. The Bastille was this fortress and political prison. Um, in Paris, there weren't actually very many prisoners at the Bastille at the time, but symbolically, they stormed the Bastille. That is the moment when the Ancien Regime, the old regime, falls. Um, one thing you will see that's very central in Hegel, you cannot unstorm the Bastille. Whatever else happens afterwards, you cannot undo what has been done. 
history has turned. The other thing I want to point out, and I'll, I'll point this out every so often because it's very hardwired into how I kind of see the world as a historian, um, is the idea of generations. So Hegel was born in uh, 1770. That makes him 18, 19, basically the age of a first-year first Yale student when they stormed the Bastille in Paris. That's a very impressionable age. <laughs> um, you know, arguably, had Hegel been 40 when they stormed the Bastille, everything might have been different. But he was at a particularly impressionable age when they stormed the Bastille. Um, the French Revolu Revolution then serves as a kind of moment of illustration of enlightenment turning into romanticism through the terror, the declaration of the rights of man, which seems so cheerful, optimistic, and rational, freedom, equality, popular sovereignty, the social contract, liberty, equality, fraternity, the end of the divine right of kings, the consent of the governed, it's going to turn into an orgy of bloodlust. It's going to turn into terror. And Hegel then is going to be the one who comes in with a theme of reconciliation, but not in a very peaceful way. Um, reconciliation between enlightenment and romantic currents reconciliation between the individual and the society, between reason and passion. And the impulse of all of Hegel's thought has to do with this overcoming of divisions, overcoming of contradictions. Um, so that's one way to try to commune with him, to try to understand them. There are always these opposites. There's reason and passion, there's the is and the ought, there's the I and there's the other, there's the individual and there's the universal, you know, and how are we going to get those things together? Hegel's going to be trying to bring everything together in a kind of grandiose ambition. Um, the other thing I want to say about him is kind of in an introductory way. He's peculiarly seductive. Um, and I'll come back to this at the end. And the paradox is once you start reading Phenomenology of Spirit, and I wouldn't recommend that you read it on your own. Some of these authors you can read on your own. I mean, you won't necessarily get as much as if you're like getting together with a group and discussing them, but you can read Nietzsche on a beach. You won't, you, know, you won't get the same level of everything, but you'll get quite a lot. It's really, really hard to get through Phenomenology of Spirit on your own. I mean, the book is written in a way that's basically incomprehensible. If you're going to try to do it on your own, I would, I would very much recommend that you download Jane Burstein's lectures and let him kind of talk you through it. Um, but the paradox is that a book that is so, that every sentence just seems to be ridiculously obscure is so peculiarly seductive. In Alexander Herzen's um, memoirs, the Russian philosopher and political thinker, he says that he describes phenomenology of spirit. It's not a book that you read, it's an experience. You live through the phenomenology of spirit. Um, so there's this paradox to Hegel's seductive powers. There's this paradox to the, the seduction of this book in particular. Okay, so we're going to go back. Hegel is, you know, Hegel was born 1770. He comes from southern Germany. 
Um, he's never struck me as a particularly nice person, but we'll kind of leave that aside because I don't really have that many interesting biographical details to give you today, and it's going to take all of the time I have to try to get you through the key concepts. Um, he was just coming of age in 1789, and I think that's the decisive biographical fact. He was excited by the revolution. He was excited by the works of Kant. Um, he is coming into maturity through the Napoleonic Wars. Um, 1805 to 1815, that are following the French Revolution. He is in Jena, remember that very beautiful wooded um, university town in Germany when Napoleon comes through and he, when he sees Napoleon, I'm not quite sure how much of this is apocryphal and how much actually happened, but allegedly he sees Napoleon and says, you know, that is world spirit on the horse. You know, now I know where the world is going. He's completely enraptured by Napoleon. Um, in 1807, um, in Jena, he finishes Phenomenology of Spirit. Um, and this, this is a book that alters everything that's happened since then. Nobody ever has quite escaped the grasp of, of this book. Um, and I'm going to try to get into it through a couple different angles um, in, in the next 40 minutes or so and see if I can find one that kind of that works as a hook. Um, let me start back with this epistemological question, which we'll keep going back to. Like, how do I, how, I mean, how do I know that the cup actually exists? How do I know it's not a projection of my consciousness? How do I know this chair is really there? How do I know it's a chair? How do you get from subject to object? The problem of the bridge, the problem of the bridge that Descartes tried to solve, that Kant tried to solve, that everybody tries to solve because here you are, you're inside your head, you know, and there's the world outside your head, and how do you possibly find that magical bridge from inside to outside? And philosophers will describe this in all different ways. They will talk about, you know, mind and world or, you know, consciousness and being imminent, transcendent, inner, outer subject, object, um, they're, they're all just different ways of talking about this problem of the bridge. How do we get from inside to outside? Nobody can get outside their own head. I mean, the analytical philosophers have all their little experimental thought exercises, like imagine the brain is in a vat. I find this extremely unsatisfying because the brain is never in a vat. <laughs> I mean, there's no reason to relate to that because your brain is never in a vat. Your brain is always inside your head. Uh, so this problem of the bridge, how do we get from subject to object? These epistemological questions were absolutely central to enlightenment with its focus on knowledge. How can we use our reason to know, to know more, to know better, to understand the world better? Man is a thinking creature, that's what makes us special. So Hegel is going to share this impulse to make philosophy like a science but he's going to want to do it in a different way because he feels like enlightenment was somehow too skeptical and superficial, that it was good at taking apart faith, it was good at disenchanting, but wasn't giving us enough depth in return. And we'll, we'll revisit this argument when we get to Husserl. It, it's, it, it's only skepticism about faith that it doesn't actually, it takes apart more than it actually gives us. Um, he wants to raise philosophy to the science, and he wants to solve the problem of the bridge. 
He wants to bring together the subject and the object. Everyone wants to bring together the subject and the object. Um, Hegel's going to do it in a particular way, you know, with a kind of dash of, of mysticism thrown in there. Um, one of the ways, one of the elements that's central to his project of connecting subject and object is he's going to take history and he's going to make it an integral constitutive component of philosophy itself. Now that might sound obvious, it was not obvious beforehand. Um, philosophy kind of coming from the ancient Greek tradition as it comes up through Europe tended to be focused on what was timeless and universal. You know, the, that ideal of two plus two equaling four. All philosophers want to get to a notion of truth that is as certain as two plus two equals four. And what is so appealing about two plus two equals four, and you saw Dostoevsky's underground man ranting about this, what if I don't like it? <laughs> what if I don't feel like having two plus two equal four? But why that is such a model for philosophers is because it's universal and timeless. It holds true always, everywhere, for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, when you're living, where you're living, two plus two is always equal to four. That's that ideal of, of pure truth. So history is always coming in with the empirical and contingent because things are changing. Things are playing out differently in one place from the way they're playing out in another place. And Hegel is going to take history which traditionally had been something that you try to kind of purge, you try to, uh, try to purge from philosophy, and he's going to make it an integral component of philosophy. And his bringing together subject and object is going to involve moving through history and making history this constituent element. Um, this consciousness of history of the passing of time. Now, together with that, we have something that was central to Romanticism that we talked about a bit. Um, and oh, I even have a chalkboard here. So this is the Sein versus Verden, the being versus becoming. The Romantics, remember Fichte said, to be free is nothing, to become free is everything. To do some action, to make yourself free. So action is going to be central, and this change in time. This notion that it's not about what is, what is always everywhere in a timeless, static way. It's about what's moving, what is becoming. And for Hegel, we're always becoming. We're always on the way. Everything is always in movement. So one way to understand Hegel, to try to commune with Hegel, another way, I keep, I'm going to keep throwing out these different elements that until hopefully you find one of these things that will help you relate to him. He's very edgy and restless. Everything's always got to move. In Hegel, you never stay still. He doesn't like staying still. He doesn't believe in staying still. He gets very irritable and anxious when people seem to stand still. Everything's always got to move. It's not what is. You never get to be satisfied with what is. You never get to take a breath. You never get to rest. You're always on the way. You're always, everything's in process. Everything's becoming. So this movement of becoming, the Bewegen seines Werdens, this is, this is the movement of turning into something else is very central. So again, these words, like I'm giving you these words in German and you're like why they, they exist in English as well. Um, 
this, uh, he's going to take the idea of the distinction between to be and to become and kind of fetishize it. Um, it's going to become central. Okay. Um, becoming, moreover, not in a steady way. So you're always moving with Hegel, but not in a nice kind of calm, steady pace, flowing kind of way. You're always kind of moving in a kind of burst and then a kind of slowing down and then another burst. You know, it's, it's like my kids when I started running 5Ks with them and I couldn't get them to start a steady pace. Like they would always have this like, ooh, gun goes off, let's rush. And then like after 100 meters, like they couldn't breathe and would slow down. And then I'm like, no, the whole trick to running is you've got to get on that steady pace. No steady pace for Hegel. There's always like the burst and then you slow and there's another burst. It's always in this somewhat, not haphazard erratic, but always in this kind of tense, not very relaxed kind of way. Um, you will hear a lot in Hegel about the transformation of quantity into quality, and I will keep coming back to that. Um, you know, for those of you who have studied Soviet history, there are some extremely moving and tragic passages in memoirs of Bolsheviks who end up in, in Stalinist prison, you know, and what are they trying to do? They're like, okay, now I have all this time. I may never get out of here. Now I'm going to go back and really study Hegel, <laughs> you know, and a lot of them are like quantity into quality. I've never really mastered quantity into quality. Now is my chance before I die. I'm going to master quantity into quality. Um, this is a, Hegel's idea of that there are moments when changes in scale become so great that they are effectively changes in kind, when changes in degree become a kind of change in sort, when changes in quantity become a change in quality. And the model of this is water boiling. Um, so you have cold water, you warm it up a little bit, doesn't seem to change. You warm it up a little bit more, still doesn't seem to change. It goes from lukewarm, it goes to slightly warm, it goes to warmer and warmer and warmer. Like, you can like, keep degree, increasing it by a degree or half a degree or whatever you're increasing it by, and it seems like not much is happening, but at a certain moment you reach the boiling point, 212 degrees Fahrenheit, okay. <laughs> um, 212 degrees Fahrenheit, 100 degrees Celsius, and then bam, quantities changed into quality right, degree has changed into kind. Suddenly the water changes form, it changes into steam. But that one degree between 211 and 212 isn't really any different from, you know, between like 65 and 66, but then you get that leap. Um, that, so if you can put that metaphor in your head and just like let it kind of flesh itself out, because for Hegel all of life is going to be like that. At a certain point, quantity is going to turn into quality. Um, okay, and he, um, he gives this example of the birth of a baby, which I will, I will read to you because it's one of the few moments in Phenomenology of Spirit when he actually gives any concrete examples whatsoever. Um, I've always been a little bit skeptical because it suggests that he has some kind of, you know, intimate knowledge of what it's like to give birth to a child, which I'm ex extremely skeptical about. But in any case, um, spirit, he says, is indeed never at rest, but always engaged in moving forward. But just as the first breath drawn by a child after its long, quiet nourishment breaks the gradualness of mere quantitative growth, there is a qualitative leap and the child is born. 
So likewise, the spirit in its formation matures slowly and quietly into its new shape, dissolving bit by bit the structure of its previous world, whose tottering state is only hinted at by the isolated symptoms. The frivolity and boredom which unsettle the established order, the vague foreboding of something unknown, these are the heralds of approaching change. The gradual crumbling that left unaltered the face of the whole is cut short by a sunburst which, in one flash, ein Blitz, illuminates the features of the new world. So the baby is gradually, gradually growing, and then there's the moment when the baby is born. Ein Blitz, this like this sudden flash of light. And here he is bringing in the idea of spirit, and that's the next big concept I want to I feed to you, and that is Geist. It is sometimes translated into English as mind, but more often as spirit. I'll often, it's good to just kind of keep it in German because it's one of those terms that's not going to translate precisely, Geist. What is, what is Geist? What is spirit for Hegel? Um, this is one of these crucial concepts which it remains a little bit vague exactly what it is. Um, but let me start at the end. So the one way to think about, and the way I think it's most effective to think about phenomenology of spirit, is as a Bildungsroman. Bildungsroman is another one of these um, German words that just means coming-of-age novel. You know, the story about a young person coming of age, what it means to come into maturity, the moment of the end of disillusionment, or the, you know, the, the coming into adulthood. A phenomenology of spirit is a Bildungsroman of consciousness. The initial protagonist is consciousness, is human consciousness. Whose consciousness? Anyone's consciousness. Consciousness as such. Consciousness is going to mature. The first half of the book is about consciousness going through stages of maturity and increasing sophistication. At one point, consciousness develops into self-consciousness, in which you also kind of have a meta-understanding and can kind of reflect on the contents of your own consciousness. And then midway through the book, consciousness merges with Geist. It merges with spirit. Um, and this is the critical merger. Uh, for Hegel. Consciousness moves towards higher and higher stages. All of those stages are about overcoming alienation. So again, remember I told you the great problem of modernity is the problem of alienation. All of phenomenology of spirit is about overcoming alienation, you know, in this very abstract sense. History is constitutive of consciousness. The experience of consciousness always implies some kind of transformation as consciousness moves forward in time to, from darkness into light, trying to overcome alienation. He is, his goal is a unified, all-encompassing system, an attempt to explain everything. And as we go through this course, you see that one way, to, one way to conceive of all of these different authors and thinkers is that there are two kinds of them, the ones who like to create big systems and the ones who like to take them apart. Um, that's one. And Hegel likes to put things together. He's going, he wants to try to create one big system. And this is going to be one great vision of what the universe is and how history moves that is connected and grounded not in the material world but in this thing called Geist, this thing, thing called spirit. So one thing, one, you can think about spirit as like a kind of individual spirit but it embraces the whole universe. 
Um, it's the kind, if you can imagine like the universe as an animate entity with a soul. Um, and the best, again, the best explanation I've ever heard anybody give of what Hegel means by spirit um, is the way Jane Birdstein talks about it in his lectures where he uses a baseball analogy. I am here going to use Jay's baseball analogy. Keep in mind, it sounds more credible coming from Jay who looks like he's actually played baseball um, as opposed to somebody like myself who obviously couldn't hit the ball like no matter how slowly it was thrown to me. Um, but it's still the best analogy I found, so I'm going to borrow it, and you can just like imagine that. I'm so, actually, my daughter is a softball player, but she doesn't get that talent from me. Um, okay. Um, so Jay says, when you, when you say spirit, think team spirit. Um, Hegel is going to try to take the idea of the whole, the collective social life, and dignify it into an absolute philosophical ground. He's going to try to provide an account of the relationship between individual agency and the structures of social life. He's going to talk about spirit the way other philosophers have talked about God. And so Jay Bernstein says, imagine a baseball team. Imagine the Yankees. Okay. Imagine it's a collection of individuals and rules and individuals engaging with objects in a certain place, in a certain context, and engaging with other individuals. So Jay says, if I toss a ball in the air and shoot it and it slams through the window, that's not a home run. It doesn't win the World Series, it doesn't lose the World Series, you know, it doesn't accomplish anything. I mean, except maybe you break the window. Because hitting that ball, the meaning of hitting the ball is dependent on the context of the whole. It's dependent on the context of the team. So what it means to be a member of the Yankees in the World Series is to be part of a group in which the individuals have a position, those positions have a relationship to one another, they have a relationship to the ball, they have a relationship to the glove, they have a relationship to the bat, they have a relationship to the history of the team, they have a relationship to the envisioned future of the team, they have a relationship to the other team on the field, they have a relationship to the field, they have a relationship to the event. All of the meaning comes from the context. So just hitting the ball, it doesn't matter if I could hit the ball just as hard or far as their best hitters do during the World Series. It would not have that meaning, hitting the ball in isolation. It's only in the context of the whole that all of these individual actions are given meaning. You know, so Jay says, when you, when you say spirit, think team spirit. And the phrase that Hegel uses is the I that is a we and the we that is an I, and that is spirit. And it's a way of bringing together the individual and, and the whole. Okay. For Hegel, Geist is the power of the whole, and everything is relational. Everything in Hegel is relational. Things do not have meaning taken apart by themselves in isolation. It's all part of the relationship to the whole. The goal then of knowing history is to understand history in such a way that makes guys, that makes spirit clear, so we understand it and where it's going. So the phenomenology of spirit is going to be the Bildungsroman of human consciousness. It is going to go through all of world history. All of world history for Hegel, who is very much you know, a European-German elitist, is ancient Greece, ancient Rome, which was 
far inferior to ancient Greece in Hegel's reading. Fast forward to the French Revolution because nothing significant really happens between those things, you know, and then to its more profound intellectual development in German philosophy. That's it. That's world history. Like ancient Greece, ancient Rome, fast forward French Revolution, you know, and then the more profound interpretation by the German philosophers. That's it. That's the whole history of the world. Um, okay. Um, you can only understand the whole looking back. So this famous line that Hegel says, the owl of Minerva, the owl of Minerva spreads its wings only with the falling of the dusk. Minerva is the, the Roman name of the Greek goddess Athena. She's the, the goddess of wisdom. It's only looking back that we can understand what anything was all about. You can't understand looking forward. Meaning only comes in retrospect. This, by the way, is Hegel's polemic with Kantian morality. Remember, we talked about Kantian morality, which is all about intentions. You know, for Kant to act ethically, you use your free will to act according to your sense of moral duty as opposed to just your random inclinations of what you feel like doing. Once you act, you can't necessarily control all the consequences of those actions. But that's not your fault. The important thing is the motive. For Kant, it's all about the motive. This is one reason the romantics really like this part of Kant. Hegel says this is a completely inadequate notion of, of, of morality. Because actions not only occasionally, but more often than not, have consequences far in excess of their intent. You can only have any idea about what an action means when you look back. The owl of Minerva spreads its wings only with the falling of the dusk. It's only when it's all over that you can possibly recognize things. Um, there are many examples I could throw out here. I'm going to give you the example of Neville Chamberlain at the Munich conference. Um, We'll talk briefly later in this course about World War I, World War II. World War I, you may remember, gets started uh, in large part because there's an assassination of this very young teenage guy, Gavrilo Princip, um, young Serbian radical who assassinates the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife in Sarajevo, and then the Habsburg Empire gets angry and gives Serbia an ultimatum, and then declares war on Serbia, and then the Russian Empire gets in on Serbia's side, and then the German Empire gets in on the Habsburg side, and then Britain and France get in on the other side, and before you know it, like all of Europe is at war when it seemed like it might have been a much smaller isolated event. So then fast forward, you know, all of Europe blows up. Um, no one had ever seen a war on that scale before the First World War. Um, 1938, um, September 1938, Munich Conference, um, Adolf Hitler is demanding to take the Sudetenland, this western, western part of Czechoslovakia, um, at, at the Munich Conference, to which no one from Czechoslovakia is actually invited, Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister, goes and says, like, well, even though, you know, he's being a brutal aggressor and has no right to this, let's just give it to him because, you know, 20-some years ago, we were all just a little bit too eager, and the consequences were mind-blowing. So now we should do everything possible to avoid war, even if it's unjust. 
Um, so Neville Chamberlain agrees to give the Sudetenland to Hitler. He comes back to London and says how horrible, fantastic it is that we should be trying on gas masks um, and digging trenches on behalf of a quarrel in a faraway country between people about whom we know nothing. And he promises the British people, I bring you peace in our time. Now, obviously, kind of famous or infamous last words, because that's September 1938. Hitler, who has promised that he's going to be satisfied with the Sudetenland and not do anything else nasty, um, then in March 1939 goes in and dismantles Czechoslovakia and occupies Bohemia and Moravia and turns Slovakia into a Catholic fascist state and then you know, signs an agreement with, with, with the Soviets to divide up Poland and then invades Poland. And then, well, you know what happens in the Second World War. Um, in any case, Neville Chamberlain had good intentions. From the Kantian point of view, Chamberlain's, Chamberlain's actions you know, were perfectly okay. From a Hegelian point of view, they were a disaster. Because looking back, that, was a kind of, that becomes a famous instance of horrific decision making. But not because the intentions were bad. Okay, how is history moving? History is, can you not hear me? Okay, can you wait till after lecture because I've got to get through everything. Um, how history is moving. History is moving in this edgy, leap-filled way through something that Hegel will call dialectics. For Hegel, dialectics are everywhere. Dialectics will be interpreted various ways, but the initial way I want you to get is dialectics is what happens when contradictions encounter each other. There's always some kind of clash. There's some kind of antagonism that's going to move history forward. When a position proves unstable and is kind of met, it's kind of met by something negating it, this move to a new position is called a determinate negation of the first. Um, and dialectics is always going to be a process by which some previous state of affairs that is being canceled, so to say, is both negated and preserved and taken to a higher level. Um, so I'll keep kind of moving around this in a couple different ways. Um, the process, uh, the, the, the clearest example Hegel gives from dialectics, which is on your handout, is the, the progression of how, like, it, like an apple tree, it's not necessarily an apple tree, it's some kind of fruit tree or some kind of other tree in his example, but how, how an apple tree is, is growing. So you have a seed and then there's a sprout and then in the, the spring you get the bud and then you get the, the leaf and then you get the flower and then you get the fruit. And when the fruit comes, it kind of cancels the flower. You don't get the flower and the fruit at the same time. You know? And so the, the fruit comes in as like the dialectical negation of the flower. So the flower is being superseded, it's being overcome, it's being supplanted, it's being canceled, but not in such a way that everything about it completely becomes non-existent, in such a way as it's taken, it's taken to a higher level. It moves closer to its telos, its telos being like that, that aim towards which it, it always intended. So in the case of the apple seed, it's aiming towards that apple. The telos is the apple. So if you get lost in all of this very abstract talk about dialectics, you know, remember the apple seed. You know, and these different stages of development of the plant of the tree, each one supplanting the other, but also taking it to a higher level. It's one way in which everything is always in motion. 
for Hegel, because you're always moving through these stages. Um, everything is always both negating and affirming its identity. Nothing is ever static. And this movement is both forwards and cyclical. Now, the way in which things move through dialectics, Hegel uses the word Alfheben. Alfheben has never been successfully translated into English. Alfheben is the verb. Alfhebel is the noun. Sometimes in English, you'll see it translated as sublate, sometimes as supersede, sometimes as overcome. They're all kind of inadequate translations. It's literally like to lift up, to kind of lift up, to take forward, to take to a higher level, to negate in such a way that simultaneously preserves, you know, to abolish but not completely cancel, um, to transcend, um, to eliminate but preserve as an element in a synthesis. This is all Alfheben. You should just kind of like take that in, into your head. And I will give you an example. Um, I will give you another example involving my children. So my, my son is now 13, but when he was two and my daughter was an infant, I was at this playground in New Haven and I had... I was, with, I was with my daughter who had just been born, and we had a German nanny at the time, um, a young woman who had come here with her partner who was doing her, his PhD, and she, she spoke to the kids in German. And, and my son, who was two, was running around the playground. And he had one of those sippy cups. Um, you guys probably don't have much experience with sippy cups, but okay, one of those like little cups that toddlers hold. Um, and, and he was constantly like flinging the cup around and then it would get dirty and then you couldn't use it. Anyway, he throws the cup somewhere on the ground and Jeanette, his, his German-speaking nanny says, Kalev, kannst du die Flasche von dem Boden aufheben? Caleb, can you aufheben the sippy cup from the ground? And I looked at her like she'd lost her mind. And I said, how could, you, how could you use that word with him? And she said, what, what word? I said, Alfhaven. You used Alfhaven with a two-year-old. I mean, how is he supposed to understand Alfhaven? And she said, well, I, what, what, would, what would you say? And I said, I thought, you know, I would never, I speak German, but my German is not great. I would never use the word Alfhaven like for something like to lift up a cup from the ground. But in fact, that is the word, to lift up from a cup from the ground. But in my mind, Alfhaven is Hegelian Alfhaven, and I would tell him to go get the cup, you know, or go bring back the cup. But it wouldn't occur to me that you could actually also use Alfhaven in this total banal, everyday way. But in fact, you can. It's just to pick up, to lift up you know, to take somewhere higher. Um, and anyway, yes, can you, uh, she didn't know what I was talking about, and I realized that, like, this is why people think I'm crazy, which is understandable. I'm like, you used the word Alfhaven with a two-year-old, and she said, well, what word would you have used to ask him to get the cup? Um, so to lift up, if you forget what it means, just think, lift the cup up from the ground. Okay, um, so the passage about the bud, which is on your handout, which is, again, as clear as he ever gets, the bud disappears when the blossom breaks through, and we might say that the former is refuted by the latter. In the same way, when the fruit comes, the blossom may be explained to be a false form of the plant's existence, for the fruit appears as its true nature in place of the blossom. These stages are not merely differentiated, they supplant one another as being incompatible with one another but the ceaseless activity of their own inherent nature makes them at the same time moments of an organic unity. 
where they do not merely contradict one another, where one is as necessary as the other, and this equal necessity of all moments alone constitutes the, knife, the, the life of the whole. Okay, so history is always under unfolding in this dialectical Aufhebung-like way, the way the seed is growing into the tree is, is blossoming and, and turning into fruit. So it's a progression that's forward moving. It's also kind of upward moving and it's kind of going in a spiral because there's also a cyclical nature. There's always some kind of dialectical contradiction, some kind of antithesis, some kind of antagonism, some kind of tension that's pushing to the next stage. So there's a cyclical element to that. Wherever you go, there's always going to be something else coming. Um, the implications for human freedom are that everything happens as it must. There, there's no, for, for Hegel, this kind of Kantian idea of like, well, why don't you do the nice thing to be nice is just ridiculous. Everything happens as it must. There's no subjectively good for Hegel. Spirit has its own objective momentum. Liberty is the recognition of necessity. Isaiah Berlin, who thinks Hegel is extremely dangerous, is very good on this point. He says, when you discover why everything as it is as it is for Hegel, you, you're just supposed to lose the desire for it to be otherwise. And the only thing that for Hegel is immoral is to oppose this great world process of the spirit's movement through time. For Hegel, alienation is a failure to understand your own individual existence in the context of the Geist, in the context of the whole. Um, to feel to be at one with this telos of the universe. Um, the way in which alienation between subject and object is then overcome is through this dialectical progression when you eventually get to this telos point, this goal at the end of history, where all these contradictions are dialectically synthesized in such a way that they disappear. We've never actually seen this happen in real life, but this is the mystical moment that, that he's going for. There's some mystical point at which subject and object Freedom and necessity, the inner and the outer, contingency and necessity, reason and passion, thought and being, everything comes to be synthesized through this dialectical progression. Um, so Hegel's trying to think you to a point where there's no distinction between the is and the ought, between fact and value. You know, it's a very hard thing to get your mind around, but like inside the system, that's where he's trying to take you. Um, I want to spend just a couple minutes, or at least I never have enough time for this lecture, um, on the master-slave dialectic, because this has been the part of phenomenology of spirit that has been enormously influential in all sorts of other fields, and in particular in social theory. There's a part, and you have a little bit of this um, in your reading, there's a part of the phenomenology of spirit that's about the relationship between the Lord and the bondsman, um, or in the more modern translation, the master and the slave, you know, in which you find out that there's a kind of dialectical clash that's going to make you understand that the, ma it's not, the slave seems to be completely powerless and the master seems to be all powerful, but you are, he's eventually going to push you to a dialectical inversion where it turns out that actually the master is the slave to the slave. And there are many, many interpretations of exactly how this works, and I'm going to just kind of like throw out one or two here. One of the things that's very crucial is this idea of recognition. The master, in order to be a master, needs to be recognized as such by a slave. In the absence of the slave, the master is just a guy. You know, the master only has an identity as master because the slave is there. Um, so the master is, in fact, dependent on the slave for his identity. 
The master needs to be recognized as a master by the slave, but only a subject can provide recognition. And the master has squashed the slave to the status of an object, to the status of a thing. An object cannot provide the kind of satisfying recognition, acknowledgement that the master would like. And therefore, the master is always dissatisfied. You know, moreover, the slave, by transforming the world through actual work, through actual labor, you know, is going to subjectify himself. Um, so anyway, there are, there are many, many ways that this can be read. There are many variations on the master-slave dialectic. It's one of the most famous passages in any work of philosophy ever to be written. Um, I've given you here, I, I somewhat cheated on my usual principle of it's a you know, European course, and since there have to be boundaries, I try to just kind of keep, keep the authors in the European canon. But I gave you some of Angela Davis's lectures on liberation because it's such a beautifully clear reading of the master-slave dialectic, you know, and in an American context that some of you may find easier to relate to. Um, Angela Davis, this is, she's writing in this when she's very young. She's in her 20s at the time. She's lecturing, and she says, the master is always on the verge of becoming the slave. The slave possesses the real concrete power to make him always on the verge of becoming the master. The master is thought to be free, independent. The slave is thought to be unfree, independent. The freedom and independence of the master, though, if we look at it philosophically, is a myth. How could the, how could the master have been independent when it is the very institution of slavery which provided his means of sustenance, his wealth? The master was dependent on the slave. Um, so just put that in your head and let it like percolate. It will flesh itself out in all sorts of life situations. Um, and, and Jay Bernstein also has a kind of beautiful reading of this where he says, what, what we cannot bear about our own lives is all the ways in which we are dependent on other people. You know, the master-slave dialectic is about how there is no such thing as, as identity unto itself. It always involves mediation. It always involves recognition through another. We are not who we are alone. We are not self-identical. There's always some kind of mediation going on. Um, and this is one, these dependencies are one of the things that are unbearable about our lives. And Jay then brings up the fact that he says, it's no secret that most murders are domestic. Why, why do you want to kill a stranger? You want to kill the other who binds you, this unbearable n nature of being bound. Um, this, by the way, is one of the, was one of these very Hegelian moments um, in the Barbie movie. Some of you have seen the Barbie movie, right? Remember when Ken is trying to figure out who he is without Barbie like looking at him as Ken, and she's like, just say Ken is me. Ken is me, I'm self-identical to myself. That Ken is me moment that happens in the Barbie movie never happens in Phenomenology of Spirit. Like the master's unable to do that. No one's able to do that. There's always, it's always the gaze of the other that gives you your identity. So right, so if you forget about the problem of recognition, you can remember Barbie and Ken. Okay, I've only got a couple minutes. So um, Hegel's importance for Marx, which is where, where we're going to going. Um, there's a certain kind of, of collapsing of the distinction between facts and values, a certain kind of amorality. Everything is going where it must. The seduction of Hegel is the seduction of the whole. The slogan, in some sense, of phenomenology of spirit is das Wahre, it's das Ganze. The true is the whole. You can only understand everything together. 
everything is interrelated, everything is mutually dependent. In some ways, the determinism is less pronounced than the totality. You have to look at the universe as a totality. And the totality can only be seen from the end. And so meaning only comes in retrospect. Um, this is what the Polish poet Czesław Miłosz will call the Hegelian bite, what was peculiarly seductive, this idea of, of wholeness. Um, Hannah Arendt will say that you know, Hegel's philosophy was the last attempt to really bring subject and object being and thought together again, but no one could be sure whether it was a residence for reality or prison for reality. Um, the seduction is the seduction of wholeness. Um, this idea that unity can ultimately be achieved. Isaiah Berlin has a whole reading of, of Russian intellectual history that says, like, the fatal import to the Russian Empire was not Marx, it was Hegel. Like, it might have been one thing for the Germans, but Isaiah Berlin's like, you give a little Hegel to the Russians and they get drunk, like, it's all over. Like, there was something about this idea of wholeness, of everything being interwoven and moving towards a whole that people could not break out of. Um, and I'll, I'll end with um, one of my favorite Isaiah Berlin quotes on Hegel, where Isaiah Berlin describes Hegel's whole system of thought, and he says, it's like a very dark wood. And those who once enter it very seldom come back to tell us what they have seen. Okay, I'll uh, see you on Wednesday. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.